How do planners plan land? And more importantly, why are there not enough homes where we need them most? You know, the ultimate insult to a city planner is to imply that cities are not planned. From my perspective, it's a naive view. Even bad design came about through design. But as our cities are changing dramatically, swelling with surges of immigrants and refugees, the question arises again and again. Where's the affordable housing? Why is there so much congestion? Where are the services like parks and schools that are necessary to support everyday life? Now my Toronto listeners will think that I'm talking about Toronto exclusively and might be surprised to hear that these are universal themes in many of the rapidly growing cities across the globe. Planners are getting something fundamentally wrong. Is there a new way to plan? The question really comes back to how much we really understand about our cities. Sometimes we build too much, and in other cities, there is clearly not enough of transit or of housing. At the core of the Smart Cities movement is the idea that it is possible to improve through technology and science what makes a good place. But are our cities getting better? The more we splurge and invest in technology. I'm Jennifer Kiesmatt, and this is Invisible City. the Mayor of London and his planning team on the design of major redevelopments across London. He truly believes in the power of technology and using technology to plan our cities better. You're about to hear that he and I don't always agree on the way forward, but I think you might enjoy listening to his view and considering his view about the way technology and other planning tools could upend our approach to cities and in turn, how we live our lives. This is the second part of our five-part Vienna series. Listen in. So I'm thrilled to say I'm here with Ewan in Vienna, and Ewan is uh, from London, born in Scotland. Uh, He's traveled the world and he is leading Urban Futures for the UK. And yesterday we had the opportunity at the Urban Futures conference to be on a panel together. And uh, we actually didn't get along that well. We were, you know, I picked on you a bit. You picked on me a bit. (laughs) I think we had a healthy debate. (laughs) We had it. We had a healthy debate. And I thought uh, the two of us should talk some more. So uh, thrilled to have you tuning in on our Invisible City podcast. I'm going to talk to you and about the future of cities. And yesterday we were talking really about the future of planning. The name of our session was Forget Urban Planning As You Know It. And really the key question was about the planning practice, what planners are doing right, what planners should be doing, what the future ought to look like. And what I'd like to begin with is just a really high-level question around what it is that you do every day. Tell us about your job, and then we'll talk a bit more about this question of our cities and what they need to become. Yes, and thanks very much for having me. So what my current job is, what I'm trying to do, is trying to bridge the gap between technology and innovation 
and uh, the the and kind of the planning and built environment world. Uh, I've been a planner, an architect, and an urban designer for about 17 years now, uh, and I know how the built environment industry works, or also how it doesn't work in lots of ways. Uh, and and it's amazing when you actually look under the bonnet of what is usually quite a glitzy profession of planners and and city enthusiasts. We, we like to think so. We like to think we're sort of glamorous. <laughs> and it, and and but it's amazing how little we actually understand about our cities when we look under the bonnet. Uh, and I think one of the ways out of this, or one of the ways to better understand our cities, to plan better, is by using a lot of the technologies and the tools that we have available to us. So this was a big part of our conversation yesterday. You were talking about um, really that there's a lot of data that planners need to access better and understand better, presumably to get better outcomes. So tell me a little bit about that. What is it? What is it that's missing right now in how we think about and how we plan our urban environments? Uh, what are we missing out on? Well, uh, 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 I mean, uh, one of the big issues for planners is housing. And uh, 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 planners need to know how much land there is for housing. How do we know how much land there is available for development in a city? Uh, I'm not sure how you do it. Where you come from, but in London we well, have... Well, we, we add up the development sites and we put them into categories. We how do you, So how do you find individual development sites? How do you know there's development sites coming up? And so usually developers have got very good intelligence informal intelligence, they've got local agents that are scouting and speaking to people, but there's much better ways of doing that. We end up, if you actually look at the, at, at the, the amount of land which, which you, in the beginning of the year we predict is likely to, be, uh, to come up for redevelopment, only about one third of that actually does. So our prediction of, of the amount of, 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 of development land that we have is actually quite far out. And, uh, and, and, and so, so the thing that we're, we're really pushing for is, is there's a better way of doing this. So let me just pause you there for a minute because I want to hear your better way of doing it. But for our Invisible City podcast listeners uh, who might not be planners, which is likely the case, I just want to explain a little bit how this actually does typically happen. And I think what you're okay. going to tell us then is a better, a better way to do it. But just Absolutely. to make sure the starting point okay. is sort of, sort of clear here. Um, and it's different in different cities. But generally, you have a policy framework. A lot of people will look at the landscape of a city and say, uh, oh, there's two-story buildings. There should really be three or six or eight or even 60-story buildings. Why doesn't that exist? In some instances, it is because of the policy framework. It's what the policy allows. In other instances, it's because of the market that there is, you know, what, what you see, we have this in a lot of our transit corridors in Toronto. The... The, the policy framework actually allows for eight stories, but what you see in the urban fabric of the city is two stories. And that's because we have a market-driven approach. We don't require the private sector to build eight stories, but we allow them to do that. Now, you might say, wow, well, if you can have an eight-story building, why would you only have a two-story building? Well, for a whole variety of reasons. Sometimes it's a property that's been in the family for generations and there's a really good tenant and it makes a profit and the owner of that building doesn't really see themselves as a developer, doesn't want to redevelop that site. So that's kind of in the existing fabric of the city. Then there's other areas of the city where we create a planning framework as planners. We'll take a certain area, we'll create an area plan and we will identify what we call soft sites. You know, we put literally X's over buildings and say, this isn't the full build out of the site. This is the, you know, it might be it's a gas station or it's a brownfield site. And then we estimate based on a variety of performance criteria, 
what ought to be the best built form on that site. And that's how we, and then we can say, okay, within a certain geography, you can accommodate X number of additional housing units and X number of additional employment units. And that would be an area planning approach to anticipating what might be possible. Again, the enabling piece. We're not redeveloping, you know, we, we and I'm assuming we're talking about a private sector-driven development process. We're not talking about Singapore, which is something completely different. But in your city, London, in my city, in New York, this is generally how we figure out uh, what might be accommodated in terms of upcoming development. Although we can't anticipate the timeline because that's driven by the market. Exactly, but then we do have we do have to plan based on this housing capacity, based on the likely population. We do. And so all our policies are structured around housing capacity and the likelihood of different types of developments coming forward. Now this is the key word, the likelihood of different types of development coming forward. And how do we work that likelihood out today? We kind of guess, to be honest. I, th I think as a planner, having been working, at, uh, uh, when I worked as a planner at, at City Hall uh, in London, uh, we, we had a kind of an alg algorithm, we had a big Excel spreadsheet to try and work out what is the likelihood that different bits of land would come forward. Now, if you think about other... Uh, how'd, how'd you do with that? How successful was that? So not very successful at all. In actual <laughs> fact, uh, we kind of it was plus or minus thirty percent. Right. The margin of error, uh, the margin of error in understanding housing capacity in cities is plus or minus thirty percent, which is a big margin of error when you're having to plan transport, you're having to make decisions on 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 density, you're having make, to make decisions on building height, uh, uh, etc. Uh, but we never talk about that margin of error because we do have a very robust quasi-judicial system where we show our workings out and our workings out make sense. It's the best we can do with the current uh, uh, tools in the, in the current uh, uh, practice. And, 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 that, and that's the number that we come up with. But there's much better ways of doing this now. Okay, so I still want to get to the better ways. But before we do that, and I recognize that I'm a total policy nerd and I could go very, very deep in this. And for everyone's sake, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> However, um, I'm surprised by what you say in terms of that margin of error of 30 plus or 30 minus. I'm surprised by that in part because if as planners, we put policies in place that enable private industry to come forward, um, I'm surprised that that's something that you measure because what we would do in the Toronto context is say, we have this many units approved, but we don't know when they're going to get built because we're not building them. The private sector is building them. We've enabled this much development, but again, we don't know how much of that is going to get, get built and when because there's so many variables, including how many developer, how many projects one developer might have on hand or um, interest rates, which we don't control, obviously, or um, access to rental construction or construction loan financing um, and the extent to which the developer who might own a property can access that financing. Sometimes it can take them years to kind of get confidence in a consortium to fund a project. And sometimes it can happen very quickly. So as planners, we sort of take ourselves out of saying when something would be built and we see ourselves as enabling the market recognizing that there's a variety of other factors that both enable and constrain the market. One of the big issues in the Toronto context right now is labor. 
that there is so much being built, even though we need even more because the demand is so high because the city's growing very quickly, there just aren't enough skilled laborers. And that is holding up, not policy, but skilled labor is holding up the developing of, of and, more, more. And uh, uh, I think that might be kind of one of, one of the key differences between, between, between uh, uh, when, you, when you compare policy uh, in London. In London, uh, we need to work out what the housing capacity is. What can we actually accommodate? How right. we, we, know, we know the population demographic. We know the projections. London's growing at about 300 people per day, every single day. Uh, uh, there's a huge housing shortage. Uh, so what we do is we create, uh, for each of the boroughs, we create housing targets that they need to meet. They're kind of 10-year targets broken down to year by year as a way to monitor uh, uh, how well they're doing that. And these targets and their housing capacity is one of the critical numbers that actually frames all the other policies. Right. So, like how much you invest in transit and how much school capacity you build. and Exactly. And right. things like building height and density. With the, so with a particular policy framework, can we meet the housing demand? Right. And that's usually what we're being challenged on. So can we meet this housing demand of 60,000 homes a year with the existing policy framework? So one of the first key things that we need to do is look, okay, so how much land is there available? Uh, with what densities do we need to develop? What is the implication on building height? And then you bring in all the other nuances of development and, uh, and costs and viability and, uh, and historic, uh, uh, et cetera. So just to go back, um in the instances where these targets have been set. So your methodology is a little bit different from what I'm talking about, but that's that's okay for a variety of reasons. We'll loop back to kind of comparing the systems because the piece that we're not doing very well is we're doing the infrastructure after, <laughs> the transit after, it's the a, housing it's the after. Same in London. And, and it's one the of the reasons we're doing it after is because we use the development charges to fund the infrastructure. So the yeah. infrastructure, the, so the housing has to be built first and then we take a portion of the fee and we assemble all those monies into a big pot and then we say, okay, now we're ready for a new park or transit's Absolutely. a whole other baby yeah. but the, the the financial model is the problem it's not the planning the planners would love to do it the other way around it's the financial model mm -hmm. that unhinges it mm -hmm. in these districts where you set a target how then do you as planners deliver that housing and do, have you been reaching those targets uh, so yes and no uh, we have not in London managed to reach our overall regional target. Uh, we've got an, a yearly regional target has just gone up to around 60,000 homes a year. We tend to deliver about 30,000 homes a year. Some boroughs uh, deliver a lot more than, 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 than their targets, some a lot less. Right. But overall, we don't. And yes, what can us as planners do? Well, what we can do is we can approve more schemes. We can make the policies a bit less on onerous. Uh, we, can, we can ask for less affordable housing, ask for less contributions towards infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's where, where, where the link between the policy and the amount of land available comes in. The policy is structured around the land, amount of land available, but then the development, the private market, uh, struggles to be able to actually deliver on that land. So, you know, it's an interesting question um, which uh, which you've raised and it's important from where we're sitting, we can look out our window uh, and see the beautiful city of Vienna. You may have heard a moment ago that the subway went by. I just learned that in Vienna, they build the transit first and then the and then the housing follows. So if they know where there's a new district, there's some districts here that are being planned for significant amount of housing, 20,000 people in a, in a new district, they build out the transit infrastructure first. And my big question uh, to my colleagues here is, wow, um, you need a really deep commitment 
to building out transit in areas of the city where you don't yet have any bodies, where you know for the first 5, 10, 15 years, the trains are going to be running pretty empty because you're incrementally building out the new population. But the thinking here in Vienna is, well, but transit needs to come first because we don't want people owning cars. It's all about our sustainability mandate as a city. So there's values. It's not about cost. There's values about the type of city and the role that transit will play in the city that has resulted in a complete upending of the financial paradigm and the financial model. And it's not seen as a risk. It's not seen as a risk uh-oh, what if we build this transit and then the development doesn't follow? It's just not seen as a risk here in the same way that I think it is seen as a risk in some other places. Why doesn't London build the schools and the parks and the transit first? Yeah, Why I mean, doesn't Toronto? Yeah. I mean, what we tend to do is we it, it's not an either or. I think we can build them both together. And, and the reality is to, to build the transit system, it takes decades. Uh, it's not going to happen from, from, from one day to well, another. Well, it's continuous. The word they use here is continuous. Exactly. They're always building transit. Yeah. And it's the same with housing. So you might plan some housing. By the time that housing actually gets built, you might have built a part of, of your transit system by the time some other bits of housing gets built. And the timing is always going to be difficult because the market fluctuates and, and the likelihood of delivery at different points, points in time is, uh, 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 is going to change. Uh, and, and I think, but I, I think, I imagine that's that's a challenge worldwide. I do think in Central Europe, though, they do have this mentality of actually being able to deliver, uh, being able to deliver infrastructure first, which is interesting. And as you said, that comes down to the financial models and how you actually pay for this thing. So why are they able to do that? Because I don't think there's a planner on earth or an urbanist who doesn't, or a resident for that matter, who wouldn't like to move into a neighborhood and everything's there, it's complete. Um, it's a better model. Why is it that they're able to achieve that in Central Europe and we just don't seem to be able to pull it off in other places on the globe? I don't know. Damn, what, what good are you? <laughs> I know. Uh, let's shift gears I, a little uh, yeah. bit since you don't know the, the most important question I have to ask today. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I didn't expect you to know the answer to that. Um, you had you had, you had implied that there was a role for technology in better linking together our forecasting and our projections and actually being able to deliver on our city building, delivering on housing. What is the role of technology in fixing this problem that we've been talking about around forecasting and actually delivering? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I mean, if you look at, again at kind of, uh, sorry again. So forecasting comes hand in hand with 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 uh, how we monitor what's actually happening. So so at the same time, we're kind of trying to understand how the city's changing, and we're trying to forecast. Uh, what we need to do as planners to be able to respond to that change. But that change happens nowadays faster than ever. So fast. Incredibly fast. So, so if you look at, for example, gentrification is a really interesting, interesting phenomenon and seeing how, it's been, how gentrification has actually changed as, as a model in cities like, uh, across the globe and the amount that it's been speeding up. Neighborhoods now gentrify within six months. It used to take about 10 years for a neighborhood in London to gentrify. Uh, and... And, 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 and the, the increase. So you, what you're saying is the capital arrives and boom, the neighborhood is transformed. Isn't that about global capital? Absolutely. It, it, it's definitely about globalism, but it's also about the access to information that we have now. Ah. It's immediacy. So I think cities have become a lot more fluid. And the planning needs to respond as well. 
Have you ever seen a plan that's been done in six months? In the last 17 years of me working in the built environment, I think the quickest we've ever done uh, a relatively simple, small master plan for about a year. And then there's another few years of actually kind of trying to work out the details. Uh, the city changes too fast. Any Toronto planners that are listening to that just suddenly stiffen their spine and feel sort of good because we always get told that we don't do it fast enough. But those are similar timelines as to Toronto. It takes time, and particularly if you're committed to a public process. You know, you, yeah. you can't, if you're going to do things quick and you're going to work with the public and have an iteration with the public, those two things often bump up once again, once, you know, against each other. But, con but continue. So, uh, so, so, so uh, I mean, uh, the, challenge, the challenge that we have is that we do, that cities are changing quite dramatically uh, because of, 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 uh, of technology. They're becoming a lot more fluid and they change a lot faster. But planning is still very much stuck on the, on the nine, uh, in the 20th century. We're still making these long-term plans. They take a very long time to make. They take a very long time to implement. They're kind of subject to changes in market. They're subject to changes in technology. They're subject to changes uh, to culture. And it's, it, it just feels like the whole system isn't really working as well as it could be, particularly when you look at some other industries, how responsive and agile they can be. So I thought, and, and, and I think this is the thing that we're trying to push for. How can we actually bring planning, how can planning learn from things like software development and, 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 and become a lot more agile? And maybe it's not even about planning anymore, it's about managing city. It's about managing city growth. Uh, and managing, managing implies that you have to understand what's happening, uh, predict what's likely to happen. And we have, so yes, in the 50s, in the, in the 60s and 70s, we, we've kind of there, there was a kind of a, a, a little flurry of activity using computer simulation around cybernetics, etc., uh, uh, to try and understand the city. And we we made some kind of com relatively complex models. They didn't work because we didn't have enough data. We didn't have the complexity. We didn't have the computer power to do that. But now, if we actually start identifying some of these individual problems, such as how many homes have been built are being built per, per year, or 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 how much land is there available for housing, or what is the likelihood of an increase in tax in the deliverability of housing? Uh, if we actually start kind of bringing the, these things into using kind of the, the the amount of data and computer power that we have now, we can actually not replace planners, but we can actually give planners a lot of help and help them make more informed decisions. Rather than rely on the, what, what, what me as a planner, having worked for the last 17 years, is, is gut feeling. I have a gut feeling of what's likely to work. I'm not saying that gut feeling is wrong, but I think we should be challenged on that. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit quiet right now because I'm thinking really hard. I'm trying to follow. I'm thinking about the messy work that planners do every day, everything from understanding soil conditions and grading and adjacencies, you know, uh, the impact of shadowing, um, the, the, des the design in a very detailed way on a specific site. There are certain parts of that that um, technology could probably help us do better. Um, and that's the science part. I often talk about planning as being both an art and a science. That's the science part. Well, we can mass out really quickly now, much quicker than when I started in planning. Like you can very quickly mass out a building and understand the shadow implications. And if we care about a walkable city, we're concerned about keeping shadows off, off parks. We can do things like that really quickly. But then designing something that fits within its urban context, um, anyone who's, you know, designed a kitchen or knows that 
pretty much the worst thing you can do is take a kitchen from elsewhere, a design, and just plunk it down um, into your footprint with no consideration for windows, for lights, for entrance ways, for the, it, there, there's an art. And it usually involves, you know, you're going to have to make your pantry a little bit yeah. narrower but if, and if, you might want to raise the ceilings and make it a little bit mm -hmm. higher and oh damn, there's a heat duct and you need to, you need to flip the kitchen around because otherwise the fridge would hit the heat duct. Um, if you take that and apply it to the city, all the same principles apply. I do think there's an opportunity to do things uh, quicker, faster and cheaper um, through the construction phase on the, uh, and as an architect, I'd love for you to speak to this. I'm thinking about things like uh, multi-story modular construction, which is being done now in Seattle. It's being done in New York. It's probably being done in places in Europe that you can speak to that can shorten the construction period. Um, but I'm just not sure how technology, unless we I'll, want yeah, a really crude yeah. outcome yeah, yeah, I, to help I, us I, on the planning I, I, phase. I, I mean, speak to an architect. What is the first few things they do when, when, when they get a site? Uh, most, of archi most architects have got a, a bucket of uh, housing typologies that they can just plug in to a particular layout. Right. What are the things they're looking at? They're looking at orientation. They need to look at, at the contextual height. All these things can be worked out by a computer or at least aided by a computer. Okay, is it a north-facing Is it a north facing building uh, uh, in the UK? In which case you might have to have a different flat typology in which that has an implications on, on, on where you put your kitchen and where you put your bathrooms. But aren't most architects doing that today already? Like I'm not, I think that's part of that year to two year process we're talking about right now already involves Yes, but they're doing, and they're doing all this manually. They're doing all this manually because they're still not using the tools and the technologies available to them. Uh, and, and yes, kind of uh, in the same way that every other profession is being kind of uh, uh, disrupted through a lot of kind of automation, the built environment uh, industry will be massively disrupted. It's a matter of time. Planning, uh, architecture, construction, all of it will. Uh, focusing on architecture again, uh, the, the key decisions that architects uh, have to make uh, are based on, again, their gut feeling. Now, their gut feeling is basic, is their experience. Their experience can usually, not 100%, but a lot of it can actually be summarized. And they, if you actually break it down and actually understand their decision-making process, we can actually start kind of automating a lot of these aspects. So I'm going to give a specific example, and then I'm going to ask for a specific example in return from you. So when I was at the City of Toronto as the chief planner, we opened up a lot of our data, made data available um, through open data at the City of Toronto. And a new company started up very quickly called Map My Property. And in the past, old school, when I started in planning in the private sector, we would get hired by a, by a client, and it would usually take us a week or two to evaluate the planning permissions on a specific property. So we would take that property address, we would go to the official plan, we would go to site-specific policies, we would check to see whether there was any heritage policies on the site, we would check the zoning bylaw, uh, we would see if there was any secondary or area plan. We would read through all those planning frameworks, determine the applicability to that one site, and then make a recommendation to the developer as to what they could build on that site. And that process involved 
research, it involved uh, reading, it involved analysis, and it involved then um, making a recommendation as to what might be achievable. And there was also always a political component. Is there an appetite in this neighborhood for more density on this site? Have there, What are the recent projects in the area? Have the residents in the area fought against applications recently in this area? What's been approved recently would be a part of that analysis. We called that a planning rationale and, you know, we would charge clients a, you know, mm-hmm. a pretty good mm-hmm. penny, 10 or $15,000 to do that. So here we make data open and a company pops up called Map My Property. And basically what Map My Property does is <clears throat> within a very short period of time, I don't know, a day, 24 hours, you give them your property address and they pump out a report. Mm-hmm. And that report instead of having a planner go out and research, that plan, that report pumps out all of the relevant policies uh, specific to that site. So basically, I would say took away about half of the process. It would also identify, which could take you know quite a bit of time, finding all of the relevant adjacent applications, where they are in the decision-making process. Uh, if there are outcomes of projects where they've already gone through the approvals process, but it's not yet built. So you're walking down the street, looks like a two-story building, but really there's a 60-story tower. You need that to go into the planning rationale because that sets the approved mm-hmm. context. All of a sudden, <clears throat> as a result of this technology and as a result of open data, you have a really you know important step in the process, a big chunk of which has been removed. Now, the analytic component of that understanding the political appetite for change, understanding the dynamic within the neighborhood. Obviously, that has to be a layer on the analysis that you're not going to get from the technology. But I think that was a pretty important shift. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it did on automate a portion of the work that planners used to do and took away. But I would argue that it allows planners to be focusing their energy in the bigger value-added components of the planning process. So I think that's one example on the planning yeah. side, yeah. maybe, of what you're talking about. Exactly. I would yeah. be interested to yeah. hear on the architectural yeah. side a specific example. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I think on the planning side, uh, we, we, we worked with, uh, with uh, a planning authority here in the UK or, or sorry, in, in the UK, uh, where we did something very, very similar. Now, let's not forget that planning in the UK is very different to Canada, and the planning in the UK is discretionary. So whilst we don't have codes, we have policies, and we can weigh different policies at different yeah, amounts. Yeah, ours is pretty discretionary so, too. Is it? Okay, yeah. yeah. So, 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 but, 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 the, but the interesting thing is that even without, weight, without weighting and the, the discretionary aspect of it, we could still create a piece of software that did very much exactly, exactly what you said and actually saved a lot of planners a lot of time and doing the kind of stuff that planners don't really want to be doing. That's true. Uh, that, that, that's absolutely true. So um, in our last few minutes here, I'd like to just shift and talk a little bit about um, the relationship between data technology and analysis and vision. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that because I think there is a risk. We hear it all the time with respect to autonomous vehicles. Oh, autonomous vehicles will transform our city. Mm-hmm. Well, Really? What's the vision of the kind of city we're trying to create? Because autonomous vehicles will be an overlay on top of that vision. And sometimes we mistake technology for actually adding value in the absence of larger principles and vision. As, As a guy who cares passionately about the future of our cities, who's engaged in thinking about the future city, what role does the vision of the kind of city we're trying to create play in your work? Because technology will not make our cities 
more equitable. Technology will not share prosperity, but how we use technology might if that's our vision, if those are the kinds of cities we're trying to create. Yeah, I, I, I think the question uh, on vision is, is excellent. And one, one, of, one of my heroes is uh, the British architect, architect Cedric Price, who famously said, technology is the answer, but what is the question? Yeah, exactly. So, and I think this is, this is kind of where we're coming from. We know that technology can help us and can radically improve the way we plan, but we do have to frame the question. What are we trying to achieve in, in our cities? Uh, and, and partly, I think technology can even help us develop a vision because technology can help us speak to more people. Uh, you know, people are talking about our neighborhoods right now. What are they saying? We can do things like sentence analysis of social media, for example, to start getting an understanding of what general moods are and what the general kind of direction uh, that, that different sectors might be, might, might, might be going in. But that actually makes the point really well because you actually have to have a philosophy and a value around local participation in order to use technology in that way. Technology doesn't go out and find out what yeah. people think. And technology doesn't create a collaborative process. That has to be your vision that is based on values that you bring to your city building. But technology can execute, technology can expedite, technology can facilitate that vision of a city that is highly collaborative. Technology can be the tool exactly. to get there, but you have to believe in that first. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I think to a certain extent, I'm nearly taking this for granted because uh, kind of, as I often say, I don't think you'll get that many planners that will disagree on what makes a good city. Uh, we might have a different way of saying it. I actually totally agree, disagree with that statement. <laughs> you should come see North America, but anyway. Okay, at, at least at least in, in UK, in the UK, and a lot of uh, Europe, uh, um, most planners tend to ha agree on kind of what makes a good city. Uh, they have different ways of trying to deliver that, and to different successes. And some of them do actually do some mistakes. But I think, I guess, I guess we're, we're benefiting from some huge mistakes that we did in the sixties and seventies. For sure. Uh, the last time we introduced a big technology into cities, uh, and and. And, and we've been trying to fix that. But in a way, having done those mistakes has taught us some very valuable lessons as planners. So I think assuming a, a lot of the, the kind of, for us to be able to use technology effectively, we have to be singing from the same hymn book. And I think we're nearly there, at least within, within the UK uh, and, and, and within a lot of kind of a, a, a Central Europe. I'm not sure what things are like in, in, in Canada and, 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 uh, and, 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 and the States, but, uh, but I, my gut feeling is, is that we are moving in the right direction as planners. We've got our hearts in the right places, uh, but we don't. We can't always deliver on that. And my point is that well, technology can help us deliver on that. Technology can help us make those visions become a reality. There's a, a bit of a movement, and Jarrett Walker is a transit planner in America who's an advocate for creating very dense urban transit-oriented places, uh, and he's written recently about. Um, some planners that have recommended not investing in transit because autonomous vehicles will solve the problem, um, which is a very naive view of the cities because aut autonomous vehicles aren't that much of a difference from existing vehicles. There's still cars that take up a lot of space and are very in inefficient uh, and very demanding in terms of our land allocation and in terms of energy, regardless of what that, that energy is. Uh, so that's an example, I think, of where there isn't yet a shared 
consensus. Here we are in Vienna in this beautiful campus with some, I think, really interesting architecture. And I would argue um, there's some parts of this they got really wrong. You know, the, the ground of plane course, of these of buildings course. makes yeah. a really hostile, Absolutely. Absolutely. hostile, hostile environment. So I, I do think those details matter because the challenge with planning is that you can actually get the density right. You can actually get the transit planning right. You can get the mix of uses right, as we see in this campus that we're sitting on right now, just outside of the core of Vienna. But if you don't get the urban design right, it's still not going to be that great of a place. I, I completely agree. And, 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 and as an architect and urban designer, design is absolutely critical to the quality of a place. But we quite often, we assume that design and technology can't mix. And there is a lot that we can actually learn from technology. Technology is moving into an area where we can now start measuring happiness, health, and well-being. So if we start, and productivity as well. So we can start linking the design of a particular building to the productivity, both economic and, and uh, social, of, of its population. And so these actually, these, those, those bits of data are about outcomes of what we actually want, what our vision is. How do we measure this, how close we are getting to our vision, are critical to start informing the way that we actually design the built environment. Well, I don't disagree with you. I don't. Um, however, I still do believe that uh, we need to continue to refine a really broad understanding of timeless principles of urbanism because those timeless principles of urbanism, understanding density and design and how to create walkable communities still needs to be the foundation on which technologies but, and but, but now, now uh, I, think, I think with regards to our approach to urbanism, we're on the same page. But what I want to do is turn that into science. I don't want it to be a subjective hunch that this is what makes a good place. I want to be able to prove what makes a good place. I want to be able to prove the impact of active frontage, the impact active frontage has on crime, for example. So, you know, you and I uh, need to stay close. We need to keep talking. I want to see how you do. You know, I would argue you prove it you can prove it through a whole variety of indicators, like some that you've mentioned, like happiness. Um, but let's keep talking about this. I'm very curious to see uh, how your work continues to unfold. And I think you're right. We have a shared objective of creating great urban places for people to live. Um, Ewan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoyed creating it. Thanks to Daniel Fusca for being my Sherpa and lugging all of our equipment to Vienna and producing these episodes alongside me. Thank you to the team at Urban Futures Global Conference for their leadership in facilitating a global dialogue about change in our cities and for sponsoring this Vienna series. And also, just so that you know, you can subscribe to Invisible City Podcast so that you don't miss out. All of our episodes are also on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com. If you like our work, give us a rating on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. Invisible City is a product of Lossless Creative, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Lossless Creative.